Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women both overlooked and iconic who achieved amazing things against the odds. And we do it through live history storytelling in Berlin and beyond. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm here remotely with Dead Lady Show co-founder Florian Dazens. Hey, Florian. Hi, Susan. I'm in my closet. <laughs> it looks comfy. <laughs> <laughs> In this episode, we bring you the story of a dead lady who challenges my French pronunciation and challenged quite a lot of people's expectations. The presentation comes from our dear co-founder, Katie Darbyshire. Uh, Katie, as you may know, is an award-winning translator and the publisher of V&Q Books, which translates exceptional German fiction into English. Their first three books were just recently released. Do check them out. They make awesome stocking stuffers. Is that? Yes, that's how you use that. It depends on the size of your stocking, but yeah. <laughs> we could all use a big pile of books this winter, this much we know. And uh, if you like a good story, you'll love this one that Katie has for us today. It comes with twists, turns, and surprises. Here's Katie with the Chevalier Dion. So this is who I'm going to be talking about. Uh, <laughs> beautiful long name. I practiced uh, French earlier. Charles Geneviève Louise Auguste. Oh. I'm trying. André Timothée Dion de Beaumont. And here she is, a copy of a painting from 1791. As you can tell by her, uh, the ribbon on her hat, she was a supporter of the French Revolution at the time. You can also see something you will see many more times this evening, the medal on the red ribbon there, which uh, was awarded to her by Louis XV for her military and diplomatic services to France. She was born in Tonnerre, Burgundy in 1728 and died in London in 1810. There are many, many versions of her story, like this one, for example, a 24-part anime where she looks a little bit more glamorous than that uh, painting. It's called Le Chevalier Dion from 2006. There was a comic opera of the same name in 1908. Here's the poster. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, <laughs> if you follow sort of gossipy things, is that the word? This is Michael Urie, an American actor out of Ugly Betty at the Met Gala this May. You can see he's, he's dressed as Le Chevalier in this fluffy pink dress on one side and a man's suit on the other. Uh, we'll come back to that. There's also these memoirs, in quotation marks, of the Chevalier Dion, which I mistakenly bought. <laughs> <laughs> memoir is a lie, as is much else in this book. Uh, the book was written uh, a decade or so after her death by a guy called Frédéric Gallardi. Uh, based on archive material, though, I'm going to read you the sleeve notes. This is the uh, 1969 English translation by uh, Antonia White. Don't believe a word of it. The most glamorous transvestite of history, the Chevalier Dion, was definitely a man. Though frail and delicate as a boy, and often dressed up by his mama in girls' clothes, he was remarkably tough and became a proficient fencer. When he arrived at Versailles, he was beautiful, young, and witty with sword and pen. 
he was also socially successful and differed only from his dissipated friends in his sexual frigidity. Frédéric Gaillardet relates how all this changed when one night at a court ball, age 26, dressed as a girl, he caught the eye of Louis XV, was seduced in turn by La Pompadour and by the Comtesse de Rochefort, who had initiated the joke. The king was at first furious, but then saw the diplomatic possibilities of this talented youth and sent him off to Russia as a spy disguised as a woman. En route, staying in Germany, the future queen of England, then a girl of 15, fell in love with him, but he preferred her lady-in-waiting, Nadezhda Stein, who became the only real love of his life. He was inevitably bedded by the nymphomaniac empress of Russia, Elizabeth... and became quickly involved in high-living diplomatic intrigue. (coughs) (coughs) Which characterized the whole of his long life. It goes, carries on. There's more of this crazy stuff. (laughs) He preferred to dress as a man, but since George III had accused Queen Charlotte of taking him as a lover... And when the new king, Louis XVI, going through his father's papers, decided that the chevalier must dress as a woman, there was pressure from both courts for him to sign a contract, this bit's true, drawn up by the playwright Beaumarchais, in which he swore never to wear men's clothes. This dissimulation, which had made his fortune, became a curse when, 17 years later in Paris, he met Nadezhda Stein, completely made up, who had been imprisoned for years with her child, his son, (laughs) and wanted to marry her, it was forbidden. He went to prison for dressing as a man, and Nadezhda followed him inside, posing as the wife of his valet. No. (laughs) Back in London, his arrival provoked George III, who believed him to be the true father of the Prince of Wales. into another fit of madness and he grew out of favour with the English court though the opposition wooed him for his diplomatic secrets we're coming closer and the Prince of Wales staged a fencing bout with the most famous champion of the day Saint-Georges returning yet again to Paris at the age of 64 during the revolution no uh, he offered his services but the Republic were not interested in this elderly Joan of Arc He died in Bloomsbury in 1810 at the age of 83, and after the autopsy, no less than five distinguished persons, including Admiral Sidney Smith, testified that the body was exclusively of the male sex. 1969. There's also this fabulous, uh, I don't know, I didn't watch all of it, fabulous uh, 1959 film, Le Secret du Chevalier d'Ion, by Gabriel Ferzetti. I'm going to give you a running commentary because it's in French, but Florian found me some subtitles. So we start with this wonderful castle. Do we have some sound? Yes. Uh, And lots of little girls. And a grumpy old man. So the grumpy old man objects violently to them being girls. Get out of the way, girls. Here comes his nephew. Don't worry, uncle, my wife is having a baby and it will definitely be a boy this time. Well, it better be, because I'm only going to leave all of my fortune to a son. 
Otherwise, I will leave all of my riches to the church. A maid calls from the window. Come quick. Is it a boy? We don't know yet. Don't forget, he says. I am impatient, as if we hadn't guessed from the acting. Here we are in the bedchamber. There's definitely a baby. Well, we will call her Genevieve. Look at his face. Here comes the best line. Georgette, we must use a screw. Do you hear me? A screw. Fasten it to her nightshirt. Your girl will be a boy. How long for? Until the old grumpy old uncle dies. There's another good line coming. Crikey, and here I am with six boys, says the nurse. There we are. I didn't watch it all because the beginning was so marvellous. But um, it, it, funnily enough, is not that far away from the Chevalier's own version that she told. Uh, here she is in an engraving from 1779, looking quite fancy, with lovely lace headdress, and, of course, that medal that we saw earlier, the cross of uh, Louis. Um, she said she was born as a girl and raised as a boy in order to claim an inheritance, and then the king found out and asked her to spy in women's clothing. That was her version. She was officially recognized as a woman in 1775 by the French king and in 1777 by a British court. She wrote her memoir in later life, but she never published it, although she did pocket the 500 pound advance. <laughs> Among her papers, which are now uh, mainly in the University of Leeds, a special request by Mademoiselle Deon for a small favor from readers, authors, and members of the Universal Republic of Letters, i.e. you, asks, I beseech each journalist, every hack writer, not to dress up my story in his own way. As you can tell, that hasn't really worked, and it is difficult. Here's my attempt. This is what we know. Here's a picture of the young chevalier, Chardillon, who was assigned male at birth, was from the rural aristocracy, highly intelligent, a very accomplished and popular diplomat, first in Russia and then in London, also had a successful but short military career during the Seven Years' War, but uh, right at the end of the Seven Years' War, which, as a dragoon captain. All along, the Chevalier really was a spy for uh, Louis XV, who was secretly planning a French invasion of Britain. So there was a gap between two ambassadors to, uh, of French ambassadors to Britain, and in that time, Dion was made plenipotentiary minister, which I had to practice at home. Um, they spent huge amounts of money on wine, which was shipped directly from Burgundy, ran up massive debts, uh, especially because the king didn't pay very regularly, then got in a feud with the new ambassador and ended up publishing these, these secret documents, not, however, the most secret documents in their possession, uh, in this kind of Twitter-worthy, tit-for-tat exchange of, of printed brochures with the ambassador. So they were recalled to France, refused to go. Here they are in 1779, wearing this beautiful 
um, dragoons uniform. It was bright green and bright red so that everyone could spot you on the battlefield. And uh, this, I'm really taken by the helmet, which I think has a, a real leopard skin furry bit and a metal top with a little face. I don't know if that's real. Anyway, it looks good. Uh, so now officially unemployed, but still holding on to these top secret documents, Dion spent years reading uh, and writing a four-volume thing about French administration, I don't know. Um, and that reading included a remarkable number of books by and about women certainly for the time, uh, and the, her huge library was later catalogued for sale at auction. That's how we know all these many, many books that were in that collection. So we're coming to a caricature from 1770. It may look familiar from that Met Gala picture. So you get this uh, lady in a dress, one half divided in half, and a, a, a man in a, a man's clothes on the other side. Um, the subtitle is Mademoiselle de Beaumont, or the Chevalier Dion, female minister plenipotentiary, captain of dragoons, etc., etc. So around this time in 1770, rumors start to emerge that the Chevalier is a woman in disguise. Present-day scholars assume it was actually her who, who started those rumors. And we do know she was, from, from records, we know that she was already buying women's clothes and corsets for herself probably not just for those cross-dressing balls mentioned in this uh, book, which did actually happen in, in among the 18th century aristocracy. Otherwise, apart from those uh, masquerade balls, clothing rules were very strict. Women had to wear skirts, men had to wear trousers. The end. Uh, here's the next caricature ridiculing Dion's membership of the Freemasons. I'm not sure what's going on because they don't let in women to the Freemasons, but we see here a... Um, a woman in a dress have ju who's just cast off her man's coat but is still holding all these sort of masculine things. A sword and a staff. Um, London city traders around this time, being assholes, started betting on whether the Chevalier was a man or a woman. And that was very upsetting to become an object of speculation like that. And also, frankly, dangerous. She was afraid of being attacked and exposed on the street. So basically, didn't leave the house or m went to the countryside for a long periods of time. Eventually, a rather angry British judge ruled that she was indeed a woman and managed to ban betting on, gen on people's gender in Britain. I think it's still banned. Uh, before that happened, though, Louis XV died and Louis XVI took the throne. Here he is. He doesn't look very nice, I think. He looks a little bit arrogant. <laughs> I think he had that reputation. Um, what he did, though, was he disbanded that spy ring and uh, he wanted to get Dion and the documents, especially, back to France. So they negotiated, over several years, negotiated this agreement, which was called the Transaction which recognized her as a woman and, uh, importantly, provided a life pension. But she was indeed to stop wearing men's clothes in order to return to France. People at the time were quite familiar with these narratives and real-life cases of women who took on male identities and male clothing and lived um, life with the extra possibilities that that offered them. But they did expect them to revert, so to speak, to, to women once they were found out. 
eventually the Chevalier, as she now called herself, did go back to France and reluctantly, under a lot of pressure, uh, started wearing women's clothing, including two dresses provided by uh, Marie Antoinette's personal dressmaker. Uh, so I'm just going to mangle all the French. Um, Rose Bertin, um, for wearing when she was introduced at court. One of them probably looked like this. This is Marie Antoinette herself wearing the kind of dresses that were expected at court. These huge panniers, of those like baskets off of her hips, making about three meters wide. You can imagine it was uncomfortable and that the Chevalier was reluctant. Um, but we have a kind of a bit of a makeover situation with this dressmaker, Bertin, being the kind of Heidi Klum of the whole thing. Uh, and a, a lot of, of uh, women in Versailles fussing over Dion. She wrote, My first toilette at the hands of the chaste Bertin and her modest ladies-in-waiting was accomplished in nothing short of four hours and ten minutes. <laughs> Apparently that was standard for the time. It would take you four hours to get ready for a, a appearing at court. But, she wrote to Bertin, You have killed my brother the dragoon. I am in great pain of it, over it. My body is like my mind. It cannot be content with being embroidered in lace. Later, she wrote, despite the complete change in my clothing, my heart did not feel any different. She often stressed many, many times that what she wanted was to change from a bad boy into a good girl. Here's a print from uh, 1787. Already you can see it's much more respectful. Um, her request, she looks classy. She's still wearing her medal. Her request to join the army as a woman soldier was denied. Uh, she spent several years living with her mother in Burgundy, running the estate uh, where the locals accepted her as a woman. Eventually, she had enough of France. Uh, they wanted her to join a nunnery. She didn't want to. Um, she got the king to pay off some of her debts in London, and she went back to London, where, where the political system was much freer than France at the time, in 1785. Initially, as we saw at the beginning, she was a fan of the French Revolution, although she didn't go back to France for it, I don't think. But then they killed the king, and her pension ceased to exist, so she went off it. Um, she made a living fencing. Uh, this is another print of her fencing with this apparently really big star, Monsieur de Saint-Georges. As you can see, she wasn't wearing those lovely tight pants. She was wearing, uh, uh, she was still dressing in this kind of modest um, black women's clothing, but fencing. She wasn't doing what we might call now performing femininity. Um, there were two powerful groups of women at the time as she saw it as she modeled herself against one of those groups which was women who who accessed power through sex like the french kings and the english kings mistresses she modeled herself very much after female warriors the amazons and especially joan of arc was who was her absolute heroine here's an engraving that shows her as the goddess pallas athena in battle outside a battle tent with a, a shield and a spear, one breast exposed. That medal is still there. <laughs> They're not taking that medal off her. And another magnificent, fancy, flouncy helmet. Um, 
She did petition the French National Assembly to lead a division of women soldiers when war broke out against Austria. They said no. We can imagine her late years, I think, as, as poor but worthy. Here she is and in older years. That medal still there. Fantastic flouncy hat thing. She shared a, a, a room, I was going to say flat, was really a room in London, kind of Golden Girls style, with, uh, with a widow. They were very pious. They had separate beds, and they, they would read in bed under the covers to save on firewood. She thought and wrote, but didn't publish, a lot about God and womanhood. In her later years, she became very, very religious, possibly through her mother's influence. And she thought that women were closer to God than men. Here's a, quite a long quote. I am no longer a disciple of this world since my wonderful conversion, which separated me completely from the body of the dragoons and from the sin of my uniform, and which finally stripped away the old man in order to make of me a totally new being before our Lord, in the eyes of men, in front of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, as well as the daughters of Holy Mary, and in the hopes of the fortune reserved for me in heaven. The knowledge of that fortune has filled me with complete wisdom and spiritual intelligence, so that I might bring to fruition every good action, and so that I might behave as befits a Christian woman, not only before the world, but also before the Lord, since during my novitiate I was washed probed, tested, corrected, corroborated, strengthened, and rooted in every way which I endured in complete patience and spiritual tranquility, the Lord having erased my obligations, which consisted of military orders, orders contrary to my spirit, and which he completely abolished and replaced with my obligation to live and die in the essential purity of my innocent dress, no longer thinking of those things here below, but only about those on high." One last engraving, one of my favorites from 1779. Again, we have these military symbols and a, a profile, another fancy hat, medal. It, it's not my place as a cis woman to put her in a gender category, which I think would probably be anachronistic, but the Beaumont Society was named in her honor, which is a British self-help body run by and for the transgender community. She lived in very different times to us, but she was a hugely popular figure, especially in London. She inspired many people, including the, the proto-feminist we've heard about here before, Mary Wollstonecraft, which was how I came across her in the first place. She, was, uh, uh, she listed her as a, a kind of a model of strong femininity. Um, I, what I admire about her is her insistence on being the person she wanted to be, turning that ridicule that we saw at the beginning into real appreciation. There's a whole lot more to learn. This is, is uh, Gary Kate's book, uh, Monsieur Deon as a Woman, is, is the kind of definitive biography, but it's from 1995. He did a, a lot of amazing research into um, her life and her documents. But scholars are still researching and arguing after her, and you can find actually a lot of that online. It's worth looking into if you're interested in it. That's it. I'm going to say thank you. Take her as an inspiration, role model, whatever. Thank you for listening. Katie Darbyshire on stage at Akud in Berlin.
So, Florian, I think this is the first time we featured a lady who we would now consider trans. Remind us of the rules of the Dead Lady Show. Yes, uh, I think you're entirely correct. Um, the the three rules that we made early in the beginning and that we've stuck to since are uh, the dead ladies to be presented on stage at a dead lady show should be deceased at least uh, six months or so least, just yeah. to let the dust settle, literally. And uh, they should not have been fascists. Please, yes. <laughs> uh, which also is easy. It's the Lady Riefenstahl rule, as I like to call it. Or anti th- <laughs> Or Coco, indeed. And the third one is they have to have identified as a woman while alive. It seems simple, but as you can imagine, it gets a little messy sometimes. Some might think about transgender people and gender non-binary people as being very of our century. But the Chevalier Dion is just one example from history. And one of the things that I was listening to recently is a couple of podcasts about public universal friends. I love the public universal friend. Yes, the public universal friend who was a non-binary, gender non-conforming or even genderless preacher and prophet in New England around the time of the American Revolution. So that's 1776. And the story is really quite different from the story of the Chevalier Dion, but there's they share something which is that quality of religious transformation mm. as an important factor in the new identity. And in fact, they, they lived at the same time. Right. Uh, the world's away from each other. Um, now, as Katie mentioned, historians don't necessarily want to apply the ideas and terminology from our era to the past. Can you say a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, the problem is, or the issue is, that the terminology is changing. I mean, in our lifetime alone, we've gone from terms that we would now call very, very offensive to our current usage of of trans woman, trans man. And at the time, some of the offensive terms were even used by the people themselves to identify themselves. So it's the language that's changing and the people are changing right along with it. So I like to think that the the more these terms are used officially, casually, like I was reading an interview with Busy Phillips, formerly of Dawson's Creek, um, and uh, it was just a very breezy interview. And then at the bottom, it said the little bio of the of the journalist who'd interviewed them, and uh, it said MX instead of Miss or or Mister, and I think that kind of language and the kind of popularization, I guess, of this kind of terminology makes it easier for people to understand that there's more than just the two super boring old genders that we're used to. And I think hearing these life stories does much of the same. It also shows there's more than one way to be, more than two ways to be human. More than three. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I hope people draw both some some comfort and some understanding from learning about these historical stories and say, okay, this isn't something new. This isn't something that we suddenly have to rearrange our understanding around. People have been this way and their own way, and other people have been figuring that out for a very long time. And hopefully we're going to keep figuring that out. Exactly. And it's and you should also always realize that historians uh, for the longest time have considered government records and official files, even church files, to be 
the ultimate in terms of objective knowledge and distrusting things like diaries or, or personal memoirs or photographs or anything like that. And I think in recent years, I mean, not that recent, I think since the whatever, 70s, feminist scholars have started to show that a lot of this government records actually forces people into categories that both in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender, in terms of race, that these people might not have identified with and might not have been real for them in their actual lives. Well, the government can be, or governments can be, just as unreliable narrators as individuals writing diaries. Themselves. I would say more, they, they're more often unreliable, even. When it comes to people's personal lives, uh, I would trust their diary over their tax returns. And speaking of diaries, that does bring us to a, a dead lady who we were talking about uh, a while ago. Uh, she's in one of our previous episodes, Anne Lister, who's become quite a celebrity <laughs> in her sense since the series and books titled Gentleman Jack have come out. And, you know, when we were speaking about her in uh, our podcast, she had been honored with a rainbow plaque in England, and that was on the site of her... Uh, marriage, which I bless, I think was 1834, uh, to another woman. And the original plaque said gender nonconforming. And there was a big discussion and to do about this um, because she was very much a lover of women. There was not the terminology at the time, uh, or she did not choose a term in particular. To label herself, she wrote about her life and loves in private coded diaries that were later uncoded. And so the, the plaque was then taken down and changed after a lot of discussion to say lesbian now. And this was quite an important moment, I think, and difficult for people who were in favor of both wordings. Right. Because maybe there aren't enough heroines or heroes in history or great people in history in these categories. And so recognizing them when possible is very important. And then how you recognize them is becoming even more important. Exactly. And I think it's also up to us to keep questioning ourselves and our own decisions to make sure that what we're doing is true to our mission, which is to share the life stories of women who've been unjustly forgotten or sidelined. And we're going to keep doing it. And there's some more information for you out there, right, Florian? Exactly. We'll have some links for you to learn more about the Chevalier Dion. Uh, see some of the engravings and other images Katie mentioned on our website, deadladyshow.com, and on our social media, at deadladyshow. Yes, do check it out. You know, we've been fortunate to have many of our live shows and podcasts supported by arts funding and organizations, but... At the moment, that isn't the case, though we hope that will change soon. So if you would like to lend a hand, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash deadladyshowpodcast, and our supporters receive Dead Lady Show stickers, books, and access to our Dead Lady Book Club, featuring exclusive recommendations and interviews. And sometimes even mini Dead Lady Show presentations. I mean... Tiny mini. Yeah, exactly. Tiny mini. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's already supported us on Patreon. It's allowed us to make a great transcripts of our episodes. Uh, it makes us easier to find for people who are looking for information about these women. And we just put all of season three transcripts up 
on the website. Yay, go Susan. Uh, you can <laughs> you can also help us out by sharing our podcast with your friends, your family, uh, and rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. The delightful music in the background is our theme song, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dyersons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Thanks, Florian. Thanks, Susan. And thanks to everybody out there listening. See you next time. Bye.